So as I said, I've um, spent some years working with bringing together Buddhism and the 12 steps and trying to understand how they might um, speak to each other, how they might uh, inform each other. And that actually happened very organically because when I first started to give Dharma talks, um, sometimes the the perfect phrase came from some 12-step idea, some literature or some step. And, um, and it started to become apparent to me that there was this... Um, harmony between the two that was not just interesting but useful. And so uh, my first book went through all 12 steps and tried to explore that. And and since that book was published in 2004, um, I've been invited to teach a lot more on that topic. and, uh, And the question that's come up the most is the question of how a Buddhist can uh, can think about the word God, or just think about God, uh, which is a idea that shows up in six of the twelve steps. And indeed, many people, Buddhist or not, really rebel when they uh, first look at the twelve steps. And they might have a problem with drugs or alcohol or sex or food or gambling or uh, any number of things, family members. Um, and they, you know, they go looking for help and then they find, well, I have to believe in God in order to do this? Well, forget it. You know? and, and indeed, there are people who, who have gone on uh, in the, with their addiction just for that reason. I've talked to and met quite a few people who have struggled with that idea. So I've, it's been important to me to understand this word in a way that made sense to me. I'm not interested at all in magical thinking or magical beliefs. And, uh, and I'm also not willing to accept just the idea that God is a mystery, which I'll hear some Buddhists say, indeed some Buddhist teachers say. Um, because the Dharma certainly isn't a mystery, and the Dharma is, uh, shares a lot of qualities with God. Uh, probably the main difference being that Dharma isn't the name of a being. But in our culture, we have this understanding, which I've come to believe is an inaccurate understanding, that the word God is the name of someone. But I I think that that's just one way of understanding that idea. Indeed, uh, Karin Armstrong, who's... uh, written extensively about the idea of God, um, says in her newest book, which is called A A Case for God, that the contemporary fundamentalist idea of God that seems to have kind of dominated the definition is an idea that was rejected a couple thousand years ago by serious seekers. Uh, and that it really has nothing to do with what we would call a traditional meaning of the word God, which surprised me quite a bit. So I have to say that uh, I had kind of bought into the idea that uh, fundamentalists of all stripes were talking about the traditional definition of God and that what I was looking at or, and what I was trying to come up with was something more um, radical. But actually, uh, the more I've actually looked into it, the more I see that their idea is radical 
uh, and that the ideas, uh, the idea of the Dharma being another definition for God is actually more in harmony with uh, historical theology. Here's something from Joseph Goldstein. Uh, if you're not familiar with him, he and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg founded the Insight Meditation Society some uh, almost 35 years ago. And uh, although I wouldn't call Joseph conservative, I would certainly say that uh, he's not one to come up with uh, radical interpretations of, of Buddhism. He, he's incredibly insightful and brilliant in his interpretation and his ability to communicate the Dharma, but um, you know, we wouldn't think of him as being a particularly fringe person. That's all in a prelude to this, which is in his first book, which I did not notice when I first read it. He says, one could equate God with the highest truth, which would be the same as the Dharma, the law, the way things are. The way of surrendering is letting go, letting the Dharma unfold. So uh, it was very, uh, I was disappointed that I discovered that quote after I finished writing this book, (laughs) because it certainly would have gone in. Um, But where I got my first inkling that, uh, that the Buddhist world and that Buddhist teachers might have some guidance on this topic was from Ajahn Buddhadasa. Buddhadasa was a great Thai master of the 20th century, died around 1993. And he was uh, somewhat iconoclastic and uh, he was interested in, in interfaith dialogue and gave a series of lectures about Christianity and Buddhism. And he said that every religion has something that can be called God. But some religions talk about their God only in terms of Dharma language. (coughs) Thus it appears those religions have no God, and so they are classified as non-theistic. Buddhism is a religion of this type. Another group of religions mostly uses easily understandable conventional language when talking about God, and they are classified as theistic religions. Christianity, Hinduism, Islam are examples of this type. Religions of this latter group have very profound things to say about God in terms of Dharma language. But they are hidden under the outer shell and form of those religions. The classification of religions into two groups, non-theistic and theistic, is a superficial classification that does not touch the real essence or meaning of religion. We continue to do so, however, because most people are only able to understand things superficially and thus are unable to penetrate to the heart of religion. He goes on to say that consequently many people come to despise religion more and more, especially what is called God. Finally, some declare that they have no religion and are proud to be atheists, which is really the situation that I I find our culture in to a great extent into this this split. And and I do think that the, the Buddhist community is a place where there can be some reconciliation because of the spirit of open-mindedness in the Buddhist world, in the spirit of nonviolence, both uh, physically and mentally. So as I embarked on this exploration, I felt that what I, what I wanted to do was investigate and develop this idea of a Dharma God. What could it mean? And so my starting point and what has been a guide for me is the third step in the 12 steps, which says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. So that step is kind of the critical step in the 12 steps, and it's got a very theistic sound to it, biblical even turning your will and life over to God. 
But what I realized through my own practice was that that didn't really mean what it sounded like it meant. It sounds like I'm going to just believe in God and God's going to take care of me. But that's not at all how it works. If that were true, there would only be three steps, but there are nine more. There's a lot more work to do after you turn your will and your life over. Well, it's interesting that Joseph says, after equating God with Dharma, that the way of surrendering is letting go, turning your will and your life over. Very similar. And in Buddhism, we have a ritual and a practice called taking refuge. We take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. We could say that's turning your will and your life over to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And both of these ideas, turning your life over or taking refuge, can be understood to mean that I'm going to be taken care of once I surrender, once I let go. And I think this is a very dangerous idea. Nobody is going to fix us. Nobody is going to save us. But we want to be saved. So, and in all spiritual communities and all religions, we find people who want to find some magical fix. And indeed, that's why I came to Buddhism. I told you that I started practicing five years before I got sober. Well, part of the reason that I was practicing was because I thought it was going to fix me. I thought it was going to fix my life in some way. I was going to become enlightened, and then everything was going to be okay. Other people think if they become born again, everything will be okay. But this is a misunderstanding. Taking refuge or turning your will and your life over is a step towards God or a step towards the Dharma. And the Dharma or God will respond if we take the steps that are required in order to be in harmony with Dharma or Dharma God. So this is what the Buddha taught. The Buddha, of course, people say they take refuge in the, in, the, in the ancient teachings, in the suttas. There are places where people say, I go to you to, for refuge. But the Buddha doesn't exactly say, you know, come and take refuge. He says, come and practice. Come and do the work. And then he explains what that work is. The Eightfold Path. Which leads to insight into suffering, impermanence, and not-self. So then, if I'm talking about the Dharma being God and turning my will and my life over, what it means is that I have to work these eight elements of the Eightfold Path, and I have to live in harmony with them. Now, the Eightfold Path is founded on the principle of karma, of cause and effect. So this is the first thing that I talk about in this book, the, what I call the higher power of karma. So I talk about each of the elements of the Dharma as higher powers. Karma means action. It doesn't mean fate, which is the kind of received meaning of it. One of those 60s distortions uh, that are so common. The law of karma is that all actions have results. Further, what the Buddha taught is that there are certain types of actions which will bring certain types of results. So that if you live in harmony with the law of karma, things will unfold in a harmonious way for you. If you live out of harmony with the law of karma, things will not go so well. So this is, includes things like the five precepts, which is right action, the right action aspect of the Eightfold Path, not to steal, not to kill, not to harm with our sexuality, not to harm with speech, not to use intoxicants. These actions put us in harmony with the law of karma. If we go against them, we not only have negative results for others, we have negative results for ourselves. 
and even if it looks like we get away with something or that someone gets away with something, that's really just because we can't see the subtlety and complexity of karma. But it's pretty clear that actions have results. And the one thing that I would say is a tenet of faith, of actual faith in something that we can't know for sure in Buddhism, is the faith that there is a moral fabric to the universe that responds to our being in harmony with the law of karma. Um, that's a, a question of faith with our, which I think is easily accepted. It's not a magical idea. It makes perfect sense. It's just difficult to prove. Uh, I think it's not too difficult to prove that actions have results. So to infer then further on that there's some uh, connection between types of actions and types of results is pretty easy to accept. Well, karma, of course, shows up in all religions. You reap what you sow, right? It's a fundamental Christian idea. And it's expressing the idea that we are not in control. We, we can take certain actions, but that there, there is a power greater than us. It's not a person. It's not a being. It's just a power, like gravity. Karma is kind of like gravity. You, know, you can try to fight gravity, but you'll wind up probably with a lot of bruises and cuts, you know, if you think you can fly. You know, I mean, we've figured out ways to fly, but, you know, in harmony with the law of gravity. Right? When, we, when the airplane goes out of harmony with the law of gra- gravity, it crashes. So karma is behind the entire Eightfold Path because what the Eightfold Path is trying to do is cultivate good karma, which will bring, bring freedom, freedom from suffering. So some of the elements of the Eightfold Path that are, well, uh, they all have power. I'm, I'm not going to go through all of them. But to say that right mindfulness, to the most kind of commonly talked about Buddhist teaching these days. Mindfulness is incredibly powerful. When you are present to your own experience, it changes your experience. What could be more powerful than that? When you are unconscious, you really lose so much control. There's very little that you are able to influence in the world when you're unconscious at least very little you can influence in a positive way. Um, Mindfulness has the quality of bringing calm to us. It cultivates insight. Mindfulness is healing. I like to, if we think of mindfulness as being present, I like to compare that with how we can visit someone in the hospital. You go to in the hospital and maybe, hopefully, well, for this example, you're not a doctor. So you go and visit, and just your presence alone has a healing quality on that person. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to bring flowers. You know, what they want is someone there to be present with them. And it's the same thing with ourselves. When we are present with ourselves, there's a healing quality. Very powerful. It's a power, it's even to talk about inside and outside isn't really, uh, it doesn't even make sense in a way when we talk about these powers. Is karma inside you or outside you? Mindfulness inside or outside? It, it's, it's all blended together in some way. It's not really separable like that. But clearly, we can only be either in harmony or out of harmony with mindfulness. I didn't create the power of mindfulness, and I can't uncreate it. I can't make it not work, you know, not do what it do. So it's, so it's a power greater than me. The, the term higher power you know, is more explicit than the word God. Of course, the word God has become so 
we, we're so conditioned to think of it in a certain way as kind of man with the beard reaching out from the heavens. To, I blame Michelangelo for a lot of our problems, actually. <laughs> but if we can think of, of God as it, or they, even, maybe the Greeks had it right with all their gods, you know. All these different qualities that are part of God. So mindfulness, um, right intention, very powerful. When we are pointed in a certain direction and we keep coming back to that and keep reinforcing that, we cultivate positive karma. So powerful, transforming. Um, You know, one of the things that I tell people uh, in recovery, there's this sort of black and white idea when you go to 12-step meetings sometimes. Like, before you were sober, you were bad. And after you were sober, you were good. But, and, and, you know, that kind of fits a certain uh, just, you know, magical way of viewing the whole process. But from a karmic standpoint, things don't work like that. There had to be some intention. And when people actually contemplate and reflect on their path and how they got there, how they got to that turning point. It was always years, usually, of effort and attempts and failure and then giving up. And then for many people, there were these kind of parallel lives. Certainly for me, I was a Buddhist practitioner and, you know, a pothead alcoholic. And they were going along together. And, and for a long time, the alcohol and drugs were winning out, and finally there was a shift. So that intention that, was behind, that wanted freedom made that change possible. In fact, the Buddha says at one point in the suttas that karma is intention. So the power of karma and the... the uh, quality of karmic results is informed by the intention behind the action. So that, you know, for example, let's say when you walk out of here tonight, you decide to put something in the Donna basket. If you do that with a sense of stinginess, like, oh, whatever, here, toss in some money, there's a certain karmic result for you in that moment, the way you feel. If you do that with a sense of lightness, of joy, it might be the same amount of money. It might even be less. The karmic result is completely different. Just the intention behind the action could be the same action, but the karmic result is different. Now, I don't know if it'll be different for me, if the money will feel dirty if I touch it, if it's, but... Uh, you know. Don't know. But that, you know, what's important about karma, of course, is for you. And, and indeed, I think one of the things that we miss a lot of times with the law of karma is that mo- maybe mostly, maybe I won't make that claim, but a, a big aspect of karmic results is the internal emotional karma that happens out of, in each moment. You know, we think about karma more in terms of like, oh, I won the lottery, or I got a parking space, or, you know, I'm, I'm so lucky I've had this uh, family. But, you know, each moment you're experiencing the results of karma, of thoughts, words, and actions. So when we focus on a negative experience and start to cultivate anger or resentment, we're, and then we start to feel anger and resentment and start to burn up inside, we're experiencing the instant karmic results of that thought. So to me, that emotional karma is more important to me, actually, than, than the material karma because the internal experience is what really defines my level of happiness much more than the external. So... Um, I want to move on to a few other aspects of higher power. Um, 
So there are these, the Eightfold Path, we can see our, our powers really that the Buddha was putting in our hands and saying, here, work with this. If you can cultivate mindfulness, cultivate right speech, cultivate you know, a right livelihood, then the karma will support you. One of the things that, that one of our daily recollections in the Buddhist teachings is, I am supported by my karma. Well, hopefully that's, you're being supported by something good. I'm supported by my karma. So if I take these actions, karma will come and support me. It won't give me what I ask for. You know, I it's not, oh, dear karma, please give me the new car, give me the relationship. It's not like that. God isn't like that. It's that you will be given, we could say, what you need. Touchy. What do you need? No. <laughs> not going to go there. <laughs> so, we cultivate these qualities. Now, the, the, some really vital aspects of the Dharma that are also very powerful are the three characteristics of suffering, impermanence, and not-self. So, the higher power of suffering. How's that sound? God. God and suffering, should they go together? Well, I think it's, it's interesting if we really investigate suffering. And one of the teachings says that suffering is the starting point when wisely engaged, which leads to freedom. And that's because suffering shows us what isn't working. If it weren't for suffering, how many of us would have come to Spirit Rock to meditate? Why bother? You know, there's lots of more entertaining things to do. You know, you know who wants to come? I mean, there's people sitting up there for two months, sitting on a cushion, doing nothing. You know? Suffering is the motivation for change. And in that way, is tremendously powerful. And as the Buddha tells us, is inevitable to some extent. I'd say maybe to a great extent. When we turn our will and our lives over to the care of suffering, interesting thought, well, uh, this corresponds actually with what the Buddha says to do with the first noble truth. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering, which is elaborated into all the details of that. But what the Buddha says you should do with that truth is you should understand that. And that to me means you should open to that, you should see that, you should investigate that. What happens when you fight suffering? Well, you can ask addicts what happens because addiction is very much the result of trying to hold off discomfort, hold off emotional discomfort by maintaining a permanent state of pleasure. And the result is the worst kind of discomfort, is the destruction of your own life, potentially. So when we fight suffering, when we're, in other words, when we're out of harmony, with the higher power of suffering, what happens is more and more suffering. To be in harmony with suffering means that we open to this and recognize its truth, its inevitability. We, we surrender to it. But not in the sense that we just give up, but to become willing to be with this you know, mindfulness is about being present. And being present is about being alive. Some part of us, though, doesn't really want to be alive for everything. And what the mindfulness is saying is, you know, you need to be alive for all of it. 
And I see this in the, the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. It really shows how depression is exacerbated tremendously by trying to fight it. When you, if you set yourself up as thinking, there's something wrong with me, I feel bad, so there, and there, that means there's something wrong. In other words, you're in conflict with feeling bad rather than just, oh, I feel bad. But feeling bad and that needs to change, then that means that your mind thinks that the way you are is wrong. And your mind thinks that it should fix itself. Well, good luck. You know, the mind trying to fix the mind. Rather, opening to and feeling what happens. The power of mindfulness allows us to feel fully without being overwhelmed, without it taking us over. Feelings so often seem as though they're going to be permanent as though they're going to just completely overwhelm you. But feelings are just feelings. You know? And the more we're just present for them, the more they heal themselves. They become processed. Very often, they are also pointing to something. One of the things that researchers have, have considered is that sadness and depression may actually, the, their evolutionary purpose may actually be to tell us that something needs to be examined and something needs to change. Well, if we ignore those signals, we're just going to continue on the path we're on, continue to do the things that are causing the suffering. So if, the su if instead we use the suffering as a wake-up, then it becomes a guide for us, a higher power. And indeed, one of the ways of even understanding the Buddha's teaching on suffering, why did he make this so important in his teaching, was so that we would change, so that we would respond to the things that were not working. The Buddha was a perfectionist. You know? He demanded the end of suffering. He wasn't willing to just settle for, like, okay, I'll just get mellow, it's like, cool, I can put up with a little suffering. No. <laughs> he wanted the end of suffering. Well, as you meditate, as you let go and you heal and you come into harmony, you have less and less suffering, right? You're less and less triggered by things. You're less and less caught up in your egotism, your reactivity. But you're also becoming more and more sensitive so that even as you have less suffering, you're still acutely aware of, I mean, if anybody here who has sat on a longer retreat knows that even as you become very concentrated and still, you start to notice just the smallest little niggling bit of suffering, that's little desire, little craving in there. And that's that sensitivity. Well, that's because that, that's your guide. That's showing you there's still something left to let go of. There's still something left. It's very powerful. Well, I'll talk about one more, one more aspect of this, and that's the higher power of impermanence. Everything is constantly changing. We know that. We know we can't stop it. We try. Another thing that addicts try. I'm going to stop feeling differently. I'm going to feel the same all the time. You know, impossible. doesn't work. You know, we try to keep ourselves from aging, or at least look like we're aging, you know. <laughs> feel like we're aging. I was thinking about that today, that, that, that saying, I don't feel old. I was thinking that myself, because I, I don't feel old, although I'm definitely aging and be turning 60 in March, so that qualifies as moving into the area of old, um, <laughs> at least into the realm. I thought, what does that mean, you don't feel old? How do I know what old feels like in the first place? You know? I feel the way I feel, and if I'm old, then, this, then I feel old. You know? <laughs> That's just the way it is. Sorry. 
Um, but impermanence is one of those things that we have so much delusion about. Well, it's really hard to see it because everything sort of looks solid. Emotions look solid. One of the scary things about them. And it's one of the reasons why remembering impermanence really helps when dealing with difficult emotions. The, I remember hearing on the radio a few years ago uh, a very, very sad, tragic moment. Uh, it was a woman in Antioch whose son had been killed in Iraq. And I, I don't even know why people, you know, reporters go to these people and ask them questions and then broadcast them. And, and doubly, I don't know why people invite the reporters in and want to be, but that's her, their problem. That's our, that's our culture. In any case, she, what she said was, I never thought he would die. I, I, I was so shocked that he was killed in Iraq. And I, and I thought, as much as I felt compassion for her, I also thought, what were you thinking? You know, every day, I have an 11-year-old daughter. Every day she walks to school, I think she's going to die, you know, <laughs> crossing the street, you know. I mean, if my child were in a war zone, I'd be thinking that they were going to, you know, maybe that's just me. I mean, yeah, I have a negative mind. What can I say? But still... You know, the, it just seems like delusion. It's like the story of the 95-year-old woman who's lying in her deathbed and looks up at the doctor and says, why me? <laughs> well, haven't you been paying attention? <laughs> it's not you. It's nothing personal. <laughs> and there's no, there's no stopping impermanence. It's way more powerful than us. I mean, I could even say, I don't know if this makes sense, but if you think of evolution as being the unfolding of impermanence, then we could say that impermanence is what brought human beings to this state of evolution because everything is constantly changing. Here we are. So evolution is really God, right? Because God, if God created the universe, well, then impermanence created us some sense. Tremendously powerful. Well, how do we live in harmony with that? Well, for one, when we're dying, we're not confused. There should be no confusion. Oh, this is natural. And that's certainly, to me, one of the valuable things about Buddhism. I remember just saying, someone, saying to someone early on in my practice, well, Buddhism, I think, is partly about, my practice is about preparing myself to die. And she looked at me like, What? I was like, okay, well, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I think so. Um, but the way we suffer, when we, when we fight with that, when we don't accept that, you know, uh, why, why does my back hurt? Well, you know, you can get a diagnosis for that. But the ultimate diagnosis is because you're aging, you know. My daughter's back doesn't hurt. You know. Time causes these things. And if I get angry and frustrated about it, there's more suffering. But if I can say, ah, if I can welcome that, surrender to that, turn my will and my life over to that, accept that, then there's no suffering, right? I mean, the, the, one of the key ideas the Buddha teaches is that idea that there's the inevitable suffering of sickness, old age, and death, but then there's this secondary suffering, sometimes called the second arrow or the second dart, which is what we think about it, how we respond to it, how we fight it. And this is what being in harmony with God <laughs> is about. Seeing the way things are, which is another way of defining the Dharma, seeing the truth of the way things are and trying to live in harmony with that. Now, what I particularly like about this idea of God is that it's not a hierarchical relationship. It's not a God that's looking down on me and making me do things or controlling me. I, there is free will, such as it is, within the limits of that. 
there's a relationship between me and God. Not exactly equal, but definitely a relationship in which I have a part. I'm not just the victim of some capricious power or some force or some God. I am a participant in it. Now to say that that I, uh, I also have to say that when I talk about my own karma, I have to see that my own karma is at least mixed up with that of six billion other people who are living, not to mention all the people who lived before me who had karma. And, and one of the things that I think is confusing to us and, and how we understand karma is there's this sort of idea that everything that happens in my life is a result of my karma. And that's a big lot of responsibility to take on. And the fact is that there's, and this is one of the reasons I think the Buddha said, don't try to figure out karma because it'll make you crazy. You know, our karma is all mixed up with each other. It's bumping into each other all the time, right? I mean, you know, if, if I were, you know, totally responsible for my own karma, that would mean that I created the English language, you know, and that I made all these clothes, and I created this building, and I also created all of you. you know. I, I mean, that, it doesn't really make sense, that idea of, you know, well, if, if somebody backs into my car in the parking lot, that's my karma. Well, I don't know. Uh, but I know, I know it's much more about their karma than it is about mine. You know? <laughs> As they were driving, you know. So we have to be careful with how much uh, we take on as our responsibility. And this is the place where we do surrender, where we let go, where we understand that there are certain things that are mysterious, like how karma will unfold in the specifics. And, you know, I, I teach a course sometimes at St. Mary's College on Buddhism, and, and um, a couple of years ago I had a, a Chinese student who was a devout Buddhist, from Taiwan, and she was shocked that I eat meat, and she was telling me what bad karma it was. And, and that was really interesting. I was like, that, maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure. I mean, these things are, you know, clearly it could be, certainly be interpreted as breaking the first precept, don't know. But, but these things, are, it's so complex that we can't really sort it all out. You know, the, the teaching on the Kalama Sutta that the the Buddha gave, where he said that anybody's teachings, you need to test them for yourself. And what you, the way to test them is to try them out and see what the results are. You know, um, you know, maybe we can't tell all the results, but we can tell a lot. And, um, and so what that really means is take the action, take the karmic action, and see what the karmic results are. So, um, I think that's enough for now, um, and we have a few minutes left, so if there are any thoughts or questions, corrections, objections, be happy to uh, hear them. Yes? I liked a lot what you said about suffering being um, some sort of uh, mover to change, and there's kind of in that is acceptance, but I'm just kind of curious about Well, no, uh, uh, that's why I reject the idea of just surrender or turn it over as meaning a passive role. I think that's so important, and, and oftentimes people understand Buddhism to somehow be passive. You know, you walk into a room and people are sitting there meditating, and it looks passive, but meditation is an actually very active passivity, right? Anybody who's done it, you know, you know there's a lot going on in there. It might look serene. But it's not. And certainly, in terms of responding to suffering, um, acceptance, is the, acceptance is the internal emotional response. That is to say, I'm, I'm going to try not to create more suffering 
by my reaction to it, by my emotional reaction to it. And then once I have come to that place of seeing it and feeling it, then I ask, what's the wise response? What's the wise action to take into response to that? Acceptance, I mean, this is one of the problems that I have with the whole sort of mindfulness movement, that it's gotten oversimplified into this idea that you should just sit and be mindful of your breath or just sit and accept everything. Well, that's not at all what the Buddha taught. You know, the Buddha taught a lot more than that. Right livelihood, right action, right speech, these are all very active things. And, uh, uh, wh- but what we have to do is be very careful that our actions are in harmony with the Dharma. You know, there's, we see suffering and, and there's this I mean, external suffering, like uh, you're describing, some political issue, or, and it triggers something emotionally in us, and we, we want to jump in and do something. Well, if that's done without wisdom, then we're probably going to just be creating more struggle. I mean, this was the problem with the sort of 60s uh, politics, that it was a lot, it was coming out of anger. And there was a lot of wisdom there, but if, if it's driven by anger, it's, it's, not, it's just going to create more anger. So that's why we have this path, you know, there's right view, which is to see things clearly, and then there's right intention. Okay, I am doing this for this purpose, to bring harmony. And then there's right action, which means I'm going to take the actions that bring harmony, and I'm going to do it with right effort and right mindfulness, so that there, there has to be that mindful component that's watching how it's working carefully, so that we're not acting out of our own reactivity, out of our own aggression. And, and it's hugely challenging, but uh, it's really the, the only way that change is going to be, uh, you know, really change that's going to uh, actually work. It's not going to just rebound and create more of the same agitation. But absolutely, uh, Buddhism... Uh, encourages us to respond compassionately to the world's suffering. Thank you. Yes? It's not clear to me as a Buddhist if I should never drink. Should I be a teetotaler? Is it the one drink even that can affect me to the point where my mind is not fully aware and mindful? Or is it a point of drinking to intoxication? How, how do I put that in perspective? Well, <laughs> I, I am uh, guess I don't know if you're familiar with the Inquiring Mind magazine, but so, something that's in the, from the Vipassana community, and I'm guest editing their next issue on addiction, basically. And we interviewed six Dharma teachers on that very question, the fifth precept, how do you understand it? We got six different answers. The thing is that, I'll say this, for myself, when I broke the fifth precept, I tended to break the other four. So it was when I was drinking and using that I lied, hurt people, uh, you know, acted out sexually. You know, all of that stuff happened a lot more when I was intoxicated. Intoxication itself isn't considered an immoral act in Buddhism, but unfortunately it leads to immoral acts, immoral in the, in the strictly Buddhist sense. So, you know, again, it depends who you talk to. You know, if you talk to a monk like Ajahn Amaro, he'll say the fifth, precepts mean, fifth precept means don't use intoxicants. But then again, someone like Thich Nhat Hanh says, well, watch out for the way you use television or the computer, or your cell phone, because that can become an intoxicant. Um, other people say what, what you're saying, that, oh, having a drink, as long as it's not leading to something, you know, real intoxication, that you're just having a glass of wine, it's fine. I, I didn't, never liked wine, so it wasn't really an issue for me, but uh, I was a... And, and I, you know, I, I think it's, it's a very personal thing, you know. Um, I really uh, enjoy sobriety as a as a state of clarity, and that's that's what I find precious, um, and that's 
why I don't have any urge to not be sober. But, um, you know, it's, it's certainly, uh, there's room for, you know, different opinions there. I'd love to make a pronouncement, but I, I don't think it would be wise. <laughs> yeah. Um, you didn't get into the higher power of, of not self, but I assume you do in the book. I do, yes. Yeah, it's it's one of the more subtle, uh, tricky things. But just to say that um, it's about our relationship with identity, and that our relationship with our identity is very powerful, right? And if we cling to one identity or some one idea of an identity, that tends to create suffering. But when we see that identity is very fluid, then we we are much more in harmony with that. That's kind of the. I think that's the essence of it. So, um, so let's close with some loving kindness. So just for fun, let's Send some loving-kindness up the hill to all the people who are practicing. Although they may be more concentrated than us right now, they may also be stuck in the tremendous challenges of deep practice. So may all the people who are practicing at Spirit Rock tonight be free from suffering. an opening to your own heart and offering yourself loving-kindness. May I be happy. May I be peaceful and safe. May all those in this room share in that happiness. May they be peaceful and safe. May all beings everywhere be happy, be peaceful, be safe. Thank you so much. Hope I will see you all again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.